Ah. Oh yeah, the shot, washing's ready in the background. Everything's ready to roll. <laughs> <laughs> you have to edit that out. It's, it's, no, no, it's, fortunately, it's just an audio recording, so that's okay. <laughs> in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that. Suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Amy Donaldson, and as usual, I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Hello. Hi. And tonight we have a special guest, uh, Chris Hayes, who's a clinical psychologist and advanced schema therapist who provides training and supervision as well as work with, with clients with a range of different presentations. So thank you for joining us, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we were really interested in talking to you because both of us are interested in schema therapy and use it probably with a broad range of clients, but neither of us really have an extensive experience with people who have any sort of personality pathology. And so we were sort of interested in speaking to someone who was more knowledgeable than us about schema therapy and kind of talking about what that might involve. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess some schema therapy is designed for personality disorders and like chronic, you know, characterological problems that are treatment resistant. So... You know, in terms of treatment for narcissism and borderline personality disorders and avoidant, there's quite a bit of a, a build-up of research that's sort of been happening in the last couple of years. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah it seems, so. certainly seems like one of the more promising uh, treatments that are available for those kinds of problems. Uh, we were wondering, perhaps maybe most many people might not actually know what schema therapy is. or So, I mean, maybe a good place to start would be, like, what's your spiel as to what, schema therapy is uh, and tell us a bit about that yeah schema therapy is a particular type of treatment that's designed like i said before for kind of long-term characterological problems often related to childhood it's also very good for uh issues where there's a, a very strong kind of way of being um so if clients are kind of very detached very aggrandizing very difficult to engage that's something that you know we it would be a part of um, skin therapy's kind of target group but it's just i guess you know it's, it's an extension it com- comes out of uh, cognitive behavior therapy and the originator jeff young from the states generally kind of found that he was doing a lot of cognitive therapy and i was finding that a lot of clients particularly with personality disorders would definitely get to a kind of a point where they just couldn't necessarily benefit they, they often will benefit anymore they would say that they would emotionally understand what was happening and you know uh, emotion, sorry intellectually understand um you know uh you know evidence against particular uh, you know beliefs and this and so forth um but not emotionally feel it so it took him to kind of look at in you know sort of bringing in other you know, psychological kind of approaches uh, and integrate it into a kind of a, a whole kind of, you know, you know, specialist type of treatment. So incorporate some psychodynamic principles, cognitive behavior therapy principles, um, object relations kind of concepts, gestalt type of ideas into a, a one unit. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, in terms of schema therapy, in terms of personality disorders, we often would sort of look at clients of having different sides and different parts 
and we were trying to access the part of the client that is, um, you know, in distress, which we, we would view as the kind of vulnerable child mode. And we're trying to get clients to change, you know, through cognitive means, through experiential means. So we're trying to get clients to feel uh, emotions that they might not necessarily feel or want to feel. Uh, we're trying to also change it through behavioral things so we can do new things new behaviors and also we're trying to change and help out through the actual therapy relationship where we kind of do a, a particular type of style of interaction therapy relationship where we're kind of you know it's almost like being a parent-like figure for the client mm. so yeah that's, there's a lot more nice. there's that <laughs> yeah it's like a, it, it sort of strikes me strikes me as a very complete therapy approach well, well the thing is with schema therapy is that it, it's it's a framework and you can integrate other stuff into it and it would fit completely so yeah. you know i do a lot of trauma work and you know sort of sexual kind of abuse sort of work and this sort of stuff and you know we said you know there's clinicians that are integrating more body-based sort of therapies you know like i often integrate it with emdr um it it can be you know sort of integrated with other you know there's you know you know, third wave type of treatments. There's a new book that's just come out that's focusing on how to integrate third wave approaches. You know, it's it's a kind of a good framework which can cover a lot of bases. And, and, and the thing is it makes sense to clients and to the clinicians too, I think. Yeah, I think that's the thing as we were, you know, preparing to talk to you that both of us were kind of feeling like it's the benefit of schema therapy often is that it, it makes a lot of sense to the person that you're working with. Like even particularly those, you know, the different schemas that might be involved in what's going on for them. Often it really resonates. And they yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and at a deeper level, I guess, as well, sometimes a lot of clients. And, and the other thing is that you can bypass stuff that gets in the way of normal, you know, traditional therapy. You know, if you've got a really, you know, strong detachment or, you know, very strong kind of punishing sides, you can bypass those things. And those things would often, you know, derail therapy sometimes when you're working with these really you know, difficult clients mm, i certainly find I, I the detached bit like in my work in oncology you get people who very detached about what's going on because they need to be but that's a barrier to exactly. doing therapeutic yeah. work and so schema schema can kind of provide yeah. the way in yeah. on that kind of stuff but yeah. hmm. You know, I know you've sort of flagged at the start that you don't work exclusively with people who have personality disorders and particularly not people who necessarily have um, narcissism. But I'm imagining that those kind of, you know, protective elements are pretty present when you are working with, with yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I do a lot of client work with complex trauma, you know, ordinarily, but I do see a lot of clients with borderline personality and some client, you know, now and then you get a client that is um, has more sort of um, narcissistic personality or even, you know, antisocial. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. I guess, you know, when you're looking at personality disorders, you're really you're looking at what, in schema theory, what we call the mode model. And the mode model is an extension from the initial kind of model in schema therapy, we're looking at these individual schemas, which are sort of, you know, sort of particular beliefs and emotions and memories and physiological sensations. And we're looking at modes, which are kind of different parts of the self. So, you know, if we're talking about doing therapy with a, you know, very, very, you know, strong kind of narcissistic client, we'd be talking about, you know, bypassing a lot of probably, you know, in our view, it would be a lot of coping modes you know now one of the modes would be you know sort of more uh, kind of a grandizer 
kind of top dog mode. So if you're looking at doing therapy with, you know, Donald Trump or something, he's in that mode all the time. But underneath, there's a more sensitive side of him that might not get much light of day. Yeah. And how do you go about bypassing those those modes? Like, say, for example, the self-aggrandizing one. How would you sort of, you know, weave your way past? Well, the thing, I guess, with with more narcissistic personality is the biggest thing is with some clients that are in these sorts of positions is to find the, the therapeutic hook to get them to change. So often clients that have these sorts of problems, they might come because they, you know, there's, there's a significant loss or there's some kind of restriction. Maybe work has placed some sort of, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, there's been some issue because they're about to lose their job because they've been too problematic in their team, this sort of thing. So, or that maybe they've done some criminal stuff or whatever. But I guess what we would be kind of doing is, A, looking at some sort of reason for the get the client to let go of, you know, particular modes and see that's not helpful. But and also initially it's just getting the client to start understanding the model and why they've had to do this. It also helps with clinicians because often you've got maybe a client with narcissism or a client that's very detached. And when, as therapists, we might take it a little bit personally as opposed to, you know, we might see this as that's just the way, that's just a you know, survival strategy, a coping style. It's just been, you mm. know, kicked down the road, but it perpetuates the problem. So we initially just get in, go on to get aware of it and then, you know, starting to let, let them, you know, get into a position where they kind of can let go of that. So it's almost like a motivational interviewing type approach, possibly, that way. Mm-hmm. We use okay. chair work and do imagery rescripting kind of work to get behind that too. So, yeah. So when you say chair work or imagery rescripting, I mean, some people would be familiar, I guess, with the idea of doing imagery, but I think chair work might be a bit more foreign to people. Um, can you give us a bit of a rundown on what that sort of yeah, looks like? Yeah, so... I mean, say if you're working with a client with a narcissistic kind of, you know, presentation, we'd be separating out different parts. So initially, in my mind, at least, you know, there's at least uh, the aggrandizer mode. So the aggrandizer is the one that's probably most difficult for people. So that would be the one that's, you know, putting you down or putting others down and see them as better. So, uh, And then there's the, the vulnerable, you know, lonely child mode. Well, we, and, and then there's the client's healthy adult. So we might, you know, in chair work, we might say, okay, we're going to put the aggrandizer into the seat, you know, to grab, grab some seats in the room, hop over there, be the aggrandizer. What does this part say about, you know, doing, talking about emotions? Or what does this part say about something that the client's been talking about, maybe as a trigger or something? You get the client to play mm-hmm. that side, but then, you know, get them to move into different roles, different seats, and sort of help separate and get a little bit distance from that mode too. So we might, you know, once the client's sort of been in that side, we might get them to move and sit next to us and then we could do a dialogue with that side. You know, so the clinician might, you know, look over to the the chair that's empty and go, look, you know, I know you're really trying to help him feel safe, but, you know, when you're doing that, you know, other people don't want to deal with that. People don't want to work with you. You know, and I don't want... You know, little Greg here to not have a job. I don't want to, I don't want Greg. To, I want Greg to be successful, but he's not going to be successful in Europe. Kind of, this sort of stuff. So we're sort of, mm. you know, yeah. 
the other big thing is the style often used in, in schema therapy for particularly narcissism is there's lots of in, what they call empathic confrontation. So you're really trying to be empathetic and empathic to the client. I never know which one it is. Empathic, empathetic. Um, <laughs> but um, we, we, had, we, had, we previously had a discussion on trait and trait. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're putting that. that box. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of, yeah, you try to be empathic, but at the same time, you know, sort of pushing to get them to change. So you might be saying things like, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm the clinician, I'm the therapist, I'm, I'm a psychologist, I'm trained to understand you, but other people kind of are trained and they have to see you as too hard. <laughs> you know, I don't want mm. you to, to lose out. So that's an example of empathic confrontation. Mm. It sounds like a, a difficult, like an interesting line to walk. I guess you could then add in the leverage or the kind of the reason that they've kind of come, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be a therapeutic hook for clients with, in that sort of situation. It's less so in clients with, for, you know, maybe borderline clients or even, you know, you know, uh, you know, avoidant clients. You know, they some of you know, most of those clients t- tend to want to to change. But often, if you're if you've got a narcissistic client with really strong grandizing tendencies, it's really worked for them in the past. That's why they're manager of the board and they're you know you know doing so well in their yeah. position sometimes. You know, so it's self sort of self reinforcing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned before about that kind of parenting feel to it can you talk a little bit more about what that what that looks like in the room yeah so like um i mean to be are we what are you are you thinking more so in terms of just general personality disorders or just or just for narcissism or yeah. uh right. I, yeah either or i'm interested in both but either. yeah yeah <laughs> well i guess like you're trying to provide like in, it, when i'm thinking of uh listening to i often listen to tapes that are rated Okay, and we would rate a tape to see if they would meet competency for schema therapy. And I'm always thinking, you know, like, how do I know the difference between a schema therapy approach versus non-schema therapy approach? So there's going to be, mm-hmm. when you look at the rating, the actual rating questionnaire, it talks about, like, going beyond the standard level of therapist warmth mm-hmm. and care and nurturance. Okay, so that's, you know, and, 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 and there's going to be, there's really four main bits to what we call limited reparenting. We're trying to provide a parent-like, you know, approach to some clients. And the four bits are really kind of care and attunement and nurturance and this sort of stuff. We want to provide guidance. So, you know, clients, we're not as person-centred. We wouldn't be, you know, sort of going, okay, well, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we would be a bit more, you know, in there telling them you should really not be doing that. Yeah. Um, because we use the analogy, it's a bit like you're talking to a five-year-old who doesn't want to go to school. You know, we, yeah, there's a client that's got a childlike side of them. We're not going to go, well, you know, it's okay. You, you do what's best for you. We might say, no, you go to school. You have to, you know. Yeah. But the, so there's the kind of the, the nurturing and kind stuff. But then there's the other side of, you know, parenting as well and, and reparenting is, is lots of empathic confrontation and limit setting. Yeah. So it's different, like, the type of relationship you have really is kind of different. The, the, the focus is going to be different for a different type of client. For a client with with more narcissistic presentation, you're going to have to do a lot of limit setting, a lot of empathic confrontation, and you know, and and that's going to be a big part of the treatment. Yeah, you're still doing the the warm nurturing stuff too, but often those clients will will really you know derail you and put you down for mm. being that way, and you just have to maintain the 
you know, the line. Mm. But then with borderline clients, you might need to be doing a lot more limit setting, maybe a bit, you know, a bit of impact and confrontation, but there's a lot more, you know, emotional, you know, a lot more direct uh, meeting of needs and in terms of attunement and nurturing. So you'd be saying to clients, you know, I really like you. I think you're a nice human being. I, 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 I like spending time with you. You might be doing appropriate self-disclosure mm -hmm. yeah so my clients know that i've got kids and they know that you know i'm not going to be kind of blank slate and so it's, a, it's a different contrast between the blank state this blank slate kind of psychodynamic mm -hmm. kind of approach to to what schema therapy is about it's a real contrast so mm -hmm. yeah do you find that clinicians uh struggle with that like and, and may perhaps get themselves into ethical problems with that or is it sort of something that people can... no, i mean look i, I think it's the kind of the other way around a lot of people really worry about you know sort of getting tapped on the shoulder by APRA but the problem is is that you you have to kind of also know what's appropriate for yourself too you know so it's kind of like it's a limited reparenting so you you need to kind of think of whatever you're doing is it in the best interest for the client so you might be offering them some extra kind of care or availability but you've got needs too you know you might also kind of be self-disclosing but you have to think about the rule that I often say, you know, when I'm doing supervision with people is, you know, is the, is the disclosure, is it going to help with attachment? Mm -hmm. Is it going to help the client connect with you? So one analogy, you know, an old friend of mine said once, he said, like, you know, if you're doing rehab, if you had a client in drug rehab and you're trying to get over your drinking problem and your therapist, yeah, you're seeing your therapist and you walk in and go, I'm, just, I'm really hungover. And the therapist said, oh, you know, well, I'm hungover too. You know, I know what that's like. <laughs> We're both hungover together. <laughs> you know, that's kind of not that not helpful. Oh, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not necessarily the best self-disclosure. But if it was someone who had a drug and alcohol problem 20 years ago and they've been able to work through it mm. and said, you know, I'm hungover and you go, you know what, I, don't, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be hungover. I know what it's like to become, you know, to, to relapse. And, yeah, that would help get a, a better attachment, a better connection with your client. So, yeah. It's really kind of coming back to that base, like sort of the theoretical roots of it, which is like how can we build an attachment? How can we sort of, I guess, like undo or rework some of those early experiences yeah. that someone's had? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I, I felt a bit semi-embarrassed even today. I had a last session with a lovely client I've been working with for about a year and she sort of teared up at the end and she was like, I wish I had a dad like you. And she's my age. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, well, I hope my kids say that, you know, and no joke <laughs> around. About it. But she, that's a part of the deal. She said, you know, it's been, you know, like I, I have you, you know, in mind and, and now I know what to do for myself because her, her healthy adult side, which is what we're trying to grow, mm. is has been helped along. So, lovely. yeah. I think um, you know part of that kind of attachment focus is what really draws me into it. I'm always yapping on about attachment stuff. I mainly work with kids, and I think that part of what I like about schema therapy is that there is that window to share little bits about about yourself. Yeah. Because certainly yeah. with work with kids, kids are never going to trust you if you don't tell them, yeah. like that you've got a like... cat, or that yes, that's your favourite yeah. colour, or little things yeah. that kind of build that connection. Um, and to be a normal human being, yeah. it's a big thing, yeah. like, rather than being a you know, clinician and, and, you know, I have no needs, I have no feelings, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like... a detached thing. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a real contrast. So, I guess that's the... Often people find it really hard because they've, you've had really strong boundaries set up in therapy training, mm. you know, and, and, you know, when they're doing their, you know, psychology or, you know, whatever training, and, and it's just too boundaried. And it, I think the big thing is is to know the boundary but know how to... To, to use it 
you know, appropriately for the client. So, you know, 20 years ago, you would have people kicking off about it. So, it's, you know, but nowadays, you know, particularly with, you know, DBT and, yeah. you know, uh, you know, these sorts of approaches, it's, it's people have been a bit more relaxed than normal. Hmm. The thing that comes to mind for me is about what's, what do you find challenging about this kind of work? Yeah. You know, so if you're working with a narcissistic client, they love putting you, you know, they don't love it, but there's just that side will put you down and, you know, kind of make you feel like you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think it's different for every, everyone as well because you've, you've got schemas. And I often say with people that come to our workshops, you know, if you didn't really do much schema therapy work, at least you know your own stuff and you, this gives you a good framework to know your own gear and how it interacts with therapy and what, why you're avoiding particular types of things and people. But often often people that are overcompensators, mm-hmm. like people that are, you know, so in, in narcissistic personality disorder, we would sort of view that as an overcompensation mode which would be the you know grandizer mode often clients when they're like that they often can trigger you off because they're more actively doing stuff they're putting you down or making some comment about what you look like what you're wearing and, and this sort of stuff as opposed to you know some detached clients that kind of just switched off mm. you know on the on the last part i think where amy and i were discussing it we sort of like like my reaction to a narcissistic thing is often like I, I want to win, whereas I think Amy was uh, you were yeah, sort of more I'm, like more I'm more submissive. Yeah, it's, yeah. Sort of, yeah. it's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. With, just within that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good example of like, you know, the framework of schema therapy, you, you know, what we talk about these modes and these coping styles and schemas, you know, it's, it's either you've you got three main kind of focuses. you got, and it's based on fight, fight, freeze. It's you either overcompensate and you try and you know fight the exchange and mm. you know, do what you do. Maybe you overcompensate, but yeah. you know either you might freeze yeah. and you kind of just go, you know, okay, just can you just you know not really kind of uh, to be good and compliant with the person, or you kind of avoid them. Mm. So a lot of kind of either do one or two or possibly the other one as well. <laughs> yeah. All three. Yeah. What, 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 what's the what's the timeline for doing schema work compared with, say, you know, the usual sort of CBT that kind of uh, is the mainstay of treatment currently? The, the the biggest issue is a client's coping mode. Like, a, a, when we talk about coping mode, is that's the presentation that they kind of tend to operate if they're if they're not willing to do imagery or experiential stuff if they're not willing to feel things maybe it's in an aggrandizer you know mode he wants to be in control be the boss tell you what to do and brag about how great things are you know the, the thing that elongates the treatment is in my view is that's the biggest problem so if you know i've got a client that i saw you know i'm seeing you know, soon is you know he's a refugee from another country, but he's just really wanting to do experiential work. He's really wanting to do some trauma focus work, and you know I could see that working really well. And you know it's very difficult to say because his trauma is quite difficult, but it is a longer term treatment. Mm-hmm. I mean that's you know, but you could do good work in 20 sessions. You could do you know a lot of my clients are kind of you know work from 30 to 40 sessions sometimes, but it's very kind of you know dug in. Problems. A lot of the research studies are longer than that, though. Wow. They're like, you know, for so clients have got really, you know, sick, you know, the research studies that we've been looking, you know, that, that are basis for the schema therapy usually is over a year or two mm-hmm. of treatment, you know, and possibly three years of treatment. But, you know, these clients are really severely, you know, they're really hard, 
to very unwell and very you know clients that are very much struggling, particularly borderline personality. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I mean, I don't want to scare people often to hear about the long longer term treatment, but you know, you can do some good work with clients if they're willing to to do things. And I've certainly, in my experience, found imagery to be one of the most powerful. Something that I've noticed is like develops a, a a change, a profound change, quite quickly or much much stronger. What, can you give us a bit of a rundown on like what imagery might entail for? I mean, it could be for narcissism or it could be for another kind of condition. Yeah. So imagery of scripting, it's really trying to, um, to via an imagery uh, process, you try to change the meaning of you know, a particular experience, a particular experience that might be related to current day emotional, you know, problems and scammers. So, you know, you often would do something like, you know, if there was a client that was presenting, you could, you know, they'll be talking about, you know, maybe having a fight with their partner, you know, for example, and you might go, look, why don't we do some imagery on that? And you could, you know, close your eyes, get an image of you and your partner and she's talking at you and she's criticizing you about being late. And and you just want to you know pick up the table and throw it at her or something, throw it out out the window, focus on that feeling of being criticised, and hold that feeling in your body and get an image of you when you felt the same way as a kid. So it might be that there, you know, we would do other kind of approaches to kind of target particular memories as well that might be linked and parental experiences, and then and then. That's our kind of a target image. That's the thing that we're trying to image. So, yeah, try to re-script. We're trying to change the ending. So the client might be like, oh, I'm there. My dad is, you know, I'm seven. And my dad's yelling at me saying I'm useless and I'm never going to amount to anything. And then in terms of re-scripting, you know, we would freeze the image and then bring us as the therapist in and stand up for the client and back them and send the antagonist away and deal with them and, you know, do whatever needed to be done for the client, you know, maybe sit with them and talk with them and, you know, you reassure them and then, you know, get that corrective emotional experience for the client. Now, you know, the client usually at the end of that feels kind of helped and cared for and they get their needs met. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that over a series of times and, you know, ultimately you want to get the client to come in and look after themselves and stand up against antagonists and yeah, right. this sort of stuff. So it's the process of trying to, you know, kind of move along, you know, to that state where they're coming in, they're looking up themselves, they're able to say, you know, I've done nothing wrong. And then, and the idea is, is that, you know, that the schema, for example, this situation might be defectiveness and shame. They feel ashamed, they've been criticized and they get really angry. You know, if we're able to re-script it and the client's able to make kind of some links to the past and, and emotionally feel different and cognitively feel different they're gonna respond differently and, and the schema is going to get healed somewhat and the reaction is going to be less you know pronounced and stuff yeah i often think about it like it's sort of like ironing out um sort of the crinkles of the past a little bit sort of yeah. you yeah. know kind of smoothing it out a little bit taking the edge off it yeah yeah so i mean at the moment yeah my organization in the health department of west australia i work at you know with um complex trauma we're you know doing a research study just looking at imagery scripting you know, the Arnold Arts style uh, imagery with scripting as a standalone treatment. So we just take all the schema work out, client arrives, and we get stuck into doing imagery scripting every session. 
and seeing wow. the results. This is through Chris, Chris Lee and Adam Arts, and I'm just one of the clinicians that are part of the trial. But yeah, it's pretty. It's yeah, if clients are willing to do that, then yeah, that, that's often good to get into that as well. Yeah, mm. do that a little earlier. Mm. I think that's the thing about the the imagery side of things. Like that's we're talking about. What are our favourite bits about? about schema and for me it's the like attachment stuff and the imagery thing but I think I've certainly had some clients who have been kind of scared of the idea of imagery like they've yeah. been on board with the other stuff but it it seems a bit odd or like they're not quite sure yeah. where it could go mm, yeah so I guess that's when you get a kind of the coping style going oh that's just yeah. that's crap why would I want to do that it's that stupid or oh yeah. no I'll miss next session and you know no nah, can we do something else or they get you talking about something else and you get you know yeah. suddenly you worked out that, oh we've been talking about it for the last hour so yeah <laughs> this is um <laughs> this is the tricky part yeah and I think this is a part of like helping the clients to kind of maybe uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be really hardcore experiences. It could be that you take away antagonists and just have an image of you sitting with little so-and-so and meeting your yeah. needs and, and then the client feels less terrified or less scared, you know, and more comfortable with it. But, you know, or they might be particular beliefs they have about, you know, if they do imagery, then they might not be able to shut feelings down. And, and this yeah. is the sort of stuff we would work with these coping modes. Yeah. 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 Work through it until it feels safer and feels more okay. Yeah, but at the same, yeah, but at the same time, you kind of yeah, sort of walking that tightrope because you're never going to get it yeah. to feel totally safe. And it's about just sort of if they, you know, I often say with clients, you know, if the clients, you know, says, you know, would you be willing to do some imagery? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yes. That's pretty much going to be a yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, it's you're enough. not going to you most of the time you're not going to get people going, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, that's great. You, I mean, twenty percent might say that. You know, yeah. so you might say, look, you're the boss, you can stop at any time, but I think it'd be really helpful. And then you, you know, do it. And often clients do really benefit and do go, yeah, I get it. I want to do more of that. So, yeah. 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 Mm, interesting. The, uh, one of the other things I thought was sort of uh, unique about the skin therapy is like the use of sort of uh, flashcards or particularly like audio flashcards. Is that something you use in your work? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, what we do, we might, look at particular events that trigger the client off. That might be a bit of a, a pattern. So it might be maybe, you know, asserting themselves with other people. They're going to get really in a big state and get really afraid and avoid it. So you might record, you know, like a logical kind of message. You could write in the old days, you'd write it. It'd be like, you know, right now I feel scared because I'm about to ask my boss, you know, for some time off. You know, this is my subjugation schema that's led me to think that people are going to get angry with me and I can't take it, this sort of stuff. And you'd write this sort of stuff down. And nowadays I would record it for the client. So, you you know, and, and record onto their phones. And then when they're in a situation where they're actually getting triggered, they pull the phone out and they're listening to that. And it's a sort of a, it's almost like a, you know, it has a rational focus, but it's also like a transitional object for a lot of clients that kind of, you know, hear, mm-hmm. it's like therapists in the pocket, you know, they get a sense of kind of calmness and, emotional resource from, from from doing that too. So Yeah, instead of I guess building up that healthy adult side of someone yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just need to some to feel like you can you, you, you know, you, okay, there's a logical component, but there's also kind of a you know, someone's in there with you and is thinking of you and this sort of stuff. Hmm. You know, so kind of crosses the cognitive and the limited parenting kind of mediums, you know. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, the one thing that we were both interested in was like, what drew you to schema work? How did you end up being a schema trainer and, and getting into this kind of stuff? 
Well, in Perth, there's a couple of people that have, you know, there's, there's a bit of a hotbed in Perth in terms of ischemic therapy. There's been a couple of different trainers and I was doing a placement when I was doing my site masters and there was a guy that, that was there at, you know, the placement who was just really kind of into it at the time. I don't know if he's into it as much, but, you know, so he integrated into a part of a group therapy program and it made a lot of sense to clients. But so I kind of got exposed to it there, but I, I liked the structure of it. In terms of kind of made a lot of sense structurally and then kind of made a lot of sense in terms of I also did, you know, like working with really complicated clients and clients that, you know, often, you know, had emerging personality disorders and things like that. So that was kind of a thing that I enjoy, you know, sort of helping out with. So it kind of made a lot of sense. Yeah, kind of fortunate to meet my supervisor who was into it really early on. Yeah. <laughs> It is funny how uh, the the supervisors you have can really shape you, yeah, you know, in a particular yeah. kind of way. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think to myself when I was doing it, he was the same age as I, I am now, and I think, oh man, like, you know, wow, <laughs> 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 well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I think the one thing that we haven't asked is like we kind of talked about the challenges and the difficult bits and stuff like that. But what's the the fun bit of schema therapy? What's the bit that kind of keeps you hooked in? Well, you know, when you get difficult clients, they're very rewarding, you know. And, uh, you know, I, the thing for me in terms of some of the schema therapy, it's not – it's okay, there's the – we would also say there's like diff, these modes and one of them is a happy child mode. So it's happy that, you know, it's kind of that's, – that's something I like to get involved with my clients. I might – I ask them to go and look for YouTube clips so we can lighten up and joke around a bit and sort of stuff. But I, I think the main thing is I, I, I like, you know, if I'm stuck with a client, and the client doesn't want to do anything or – and I feel very kind of, you know, um, I don't know, you know, it, it's a Friday and it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon and it's really kind of <laughs> tough. Yeah, schema therapy always gives you op- – it gives you options to do something. You know, in some other projects, you might get stuck with a whiteboard or you might be just having a chat fest. Yeah. And at least schema therapy, I like to have structure and I like to feel like I can, you know, kind of get around and actually make a change to some people and I think – it help, at least it helps me to kind of feel like I can do that. So if, if someone isn't, you know, really is just sort of wanting to have a chat about, you know, stuff and is sort of detaching and downloading, you know, I can do chair work with that. I could do some imagery with that. I could do some stuff on the whiteboard with that. I've got lots of different options, you know, rather than just, you know, a, you know one, you know, it's quite, it helps you to be quite creative, I think. And it's flexible yeah. so you can bring on things in mind too. Yeah. Nice. But, yeah, it's quite exciting, I think, to be able to just go, all right, I'm going to pull out a chair and the client can look at you quite funny and kind of go, what, like, what is this guy doing? But mm. then they kind of, they get buy-in or something. I don't know mm. what it is. Yeah. yeah, if you're confident, you know, I think the thing is if you're confident with it and you're kind of, you know, you're like, no, this is this is really works and clients do buy-in and they do like it. So, yeah. But, um, yeah. For pe- cl- clinicians who are interested in it, like, where, wh- what do you reckon is the best place to start for someone to kind of, like, is there a good book? What's the best book you reckon, or is it? Well, there's a couple of, you know, the main books are Schema Therapy Practitioner's Guide, and that's a one by Jeff Young. And that's kind of a really old book that's been around for a long time. There's also another book by um, Gitta Jacob and Arnold Arntz called Schema Therapy in Practice. So those two are probably the good textbooks. Um, look, the big thing is workshops, I think. It's like getting in there and, and doing you – know, you can do like – I mean, I'm not going to plug – well, I can't plug my workshops. We you do definitely yeah. plug it. <laughs> look yeah, at schematherapytraining.com. Um, so we do workshops. And look, the big feedback – and it's from research base as well. When they look at, you know, the research and the treatment 
the biggest thing is you get clients that, you know, sorry, uh, clinicians that go to a, a one-day workshop and they have a bit of a, you know, lecture out kind of situation with 500 people, 100 people. Those guys versus the guys that come along and it's smaller and you do lots of experiential stuff and you do lots of practice. So you go and do, okay, we're going to do imagery scripting exercise, watch a video, practice, have have some coaching on it. They're the guys that have, you know, much better outcomes. So in terms of the workshops that we do and a lot of the workshops that tend to be around at the moment that are accredited through the Schema Therapy Society, yeah, it's it's a more of a focus on, you know, sort of um, doing lots of role plays and things like that. So I think that's the best mm-hmm. thing is to, to look at maybe, you know, if you're interested in in training is to go along to something, particularly one that has some role play in it, you know. So, yeah. Also, like there's, um, you know, on our website, we sell DVDs for imagery rescripting and it was one that we just put out about chair work as well. You can watch, you know, clinicians doing chair work and I think that's a really good way of learning as well. That's Personally, that's how I, you know, kind of learned a lot from when I was in my yeah. training kind of period. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Awesome. Cool. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And yeah, it's a pleasure. I could go on for hours. We just keep, just keep talking. <laughs> Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, it back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we have that problem quite often. Quite often, <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on Two Shrinks Pod. We should have called it Three Shrinks, three three shrinks. shrinks Pod. That's, yeah. that's too difficult to say. Yeah. Plus one. <laughs> Plus right, one. Well, yeah. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. Thank you for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. If you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us on iTunes, tweet at us, share our tweets when we post about new episodes, email us. Everything's Two Shrinks Pod. So www.twoshrinkspod.com, twoshrinkspod at gmail.com, at twoshrinkspod on, at Twitter. Two Shrinks Pod on Twitter. We're really consistent. The point of all of this is yes, that. Why, Amy? Why? Well, because Hunter makes me say this every time, but also because we really, really want some kind of cushy sponsorship deal. Yes. Like, that would be amazing. Amy has a lot of Harry Potter merchandise that she needs to buy. I do, and we need a lot of gin. Gin. Okay, so we have needs, as do you all, and, you know, we've been listening to other podcasts and feeling jealous. That's it. Well, the, the upshot is you could hear me talk about like some kind of mattress company that... Oh, a foldable one? The, the ones that just pops out of a box and then you could do whatever you want to that mattress and return it after a month. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, absolutely perfect. Like you, could, you could eat a spaghetti would, bolognese on it. What, you would, you, what, would, you like to, what would you like to announce? Well, I would really like to announce one of those subscription services. Yep. You know, the ones where you get like a box of crap that's all themed? Oh, no, I don't Have know. Have you heard those about ones? those no. ones? Oh, yeah. Is that the ones where the box of food comes in and there's a hoppy cheddar sauce on something or else that you want? Yeah, yeah, or like it's all themed around Star Wars or Superman. Yeah, no, I don't. Yes. <laughs> oh, your actually. eyes have just lit up about that. Or like audiobooks. Yeah. I love oh, audiobooks while yeah. I am doing stuff. Like yep. we yep. could access we could to get multiple audiobooks or makes, actually I, I want I want one of those digital scales to save my save me uh, time at the post office because oh. going to the post office is exhausting apparently. Yeah, so all those like packing, posting needs, <laughs> tape. 
Yeah, see, look, we've got this absolutely nailed. Good coffee delivered. I reckon I could do a good coffee ad. Yeah, we really should have our site sponsored as well. Mm, like, mm. you know, <laughs> who hosts that anyway? I don't know. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, no, we can actually. Shaving services. <laughs> shaving services. You know, where you get a new razor sent to oh. you at the frequency of your hair growth? That's it. And those guys like that started up their own razor company or the, they, they yeah. wanted to break the watchmaking industry or something. I don't know. Exactly. Anyway, so upshot of that is. Rate and review the show. Tell someone about Two Shrinks Pod. Yeah. We're going to get stuff. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you for listening to our interview and our ramblings in the break. As always, we want to finish off with things we came across. So little articles that sometimes have things to do with psychology, sometimes are off on a tangent that we've come across that have Most tickled our fancy. tangent. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to go first? Yeah, I do. Uh, you like soccer? Sure. Sure. No, do you? As far as sports go, yes. Yep. But I'm not a big sports person. Are you watching the World Cup? In bits and pieces. In bits and pieces. Yeah. So, like, soccer, tennis, swimming are the only things that I'll even consider watching on TV. Yeah. When they're on. The rest, I don't even know that they're on. Yeah. So, that's kind of the sliding scale of interest. So, like, the, the only time I ever watch soccer or football is at the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it's just so tense anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, but I, I, was, I was thinking about it because I was, I've been listening to a podcast called World Cup Road Trip. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, got a guy called Tony Wilson and another guy, Francis Leach. So, sort of, they're Australian broadcasters. And they're on, like, a tour of Russia going with the Green and Gold Army following the team around. Interesting. And just a whole lot of episodes where they're kind of, like, walking around Red Square, chatting to Australians there or, yeah. you know, kind of doing sort of Russia stuff but then also talking about the game and talking to people who are going to the game and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite interesting. All right, so that got me thinking football. Yeah. So this is an in-press article. Mm. So and it must be timed. So it's from the Journal of Economic Psychology by Astrid Hoppenfeinsitz and Cesar Mantilla and they're from Toulouse. Oh, wow, I've really Ooh. butchered those names because I'm sure they're French. Yeah, um, yeah they th- sounded kind of German. F- FYI, thanks for beating us, France. Um, <laughs> so the Australian fo- football team is called the Socceroos. Correct. Which is, God, like, I'm, not, I'm never sure about that uh, as a name. It is what it is. You know what the was it? The it doesn't instill fear. Do you know the, the New Zealand basketball team? Mm. Tall blacks. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Anyway, so this um, so this paper is called "Emotional Expressions by Sports Teams: An Analysis of World Cup Soccer Player Portraits." Mm. They talk about confidence and intimidation are usually are regularly used in conflicts amongst humans and other animals, mm-hmm. and sports like modern conflict, and it's like a way of Persuading contestants of your own superior abilities. Mm-hmm. So a classic thing is like the New Zealand haka pregame, which is like if you if you were standing there and like were ten ma- huge Maori dudes doing the haka, I would be changing my underwear. Yeah. So, do you know? Just as a little tangent. Yep. I used to work at a primary school that had quite a big Maori community. Yeah. Right. And when we'd have soccer days. 
the Maori boys would do the haka and it was amazing like it was even scary when there were a bunch of 12 year olds like the facial expressions and the intensity and they get so into it it was awesome yeah it's really like it's really impressive yeah. so so they talk about like the one important dimension of psychological battles is the expression and perception of emotions so they present evidence in this paper that soccer teams display specific emotions outside of a game setting which seem to be correlated with hot with their performance in a high-stakes environment. Okay. So they looked at two types of emotional displays, aggression, mm-hmm. uh, and that seems to be related to outgroup hostility. And so they seem to think that that might be related to defensive behaviour in soccer. Yeah. And emotions related to happiness and confidence, which they seem to think might be related to offensive or attacking mm-hmm. behaviour in soccer. So anger and happiness, universally expressed. Yeah. So there was like a lot of complex discussion about signals. Yeah quote-unquote, they analysed photos of, wait for it, 4,318 players wow. from 304 teams in FIFA World Cup over 44 years. So I think they And is that photos outside the game? So what they did, skipping ahead, so what they, there's like, like some kind of sticker book headshot thing oh, yeah. that yep. they... Got that sounds like really collectible <laughs> to say. Yeah, there's the other podcast that I love, No Such Thing as a Fish, did yep. a soccer special. Yeah. And one of the people on there collects oh, the sure, stickers. Yeah. But apparently, the most valuable thing is to buy on eBay the full sticker set and an empty album. Yeah. It was something huge, like 10,000. Yeah, right. Euros or something. It was massive because then you get both everything in pristine condition and the joy of placing your own stickers. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. it's big. Well, that's when you buy Star Wars figure, you buy like two. Two. One, one. you can open. Yeah. One, one you keep. Put in the Some people buy three, but you know, one for spare. Um, but I don't do that. So anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to edit that you out. You have some restraint. <laughs> some some restraint. Yeah. Um, so they, they sort of analysed facial expressions. They used a data set of players' portraits from mm-hmm. the collectible stickers that have been produced by Panini mm-hmm. for every World Cup since 1970. Soccer federations and players themselves are aware of this sticker collection fame yeah. and have been using the stickers to showcase their league. So there's this kind of this theory about like, well, they might be using, like know of this and using this as a way of kind of like influencing or intimidating their, their rivals. Um, so as a deliberate thing rather than a... Yeah. So that so that what they were interesting is they were the display and possible signalling of value of emotions, and that their emotional display could be an involuntary sign of underlying trait, mm-hmm. or it could be strategically done to influence such a trait. Yeah. So they also say you know more facial expressions are easy to modify by the individual and expressions that reliably judge to be linked to certain traits. So mm-hmm. there's kind of there's a whole lot of science behind it. I will skip over most of it. Mm-hmm. And so they were wondering whether they use their media presence to display some desired characteristics, mm-hmm. point out their strength and their aggression, um, and they might choose to do that through this kind of stuff. So they use facial recognition software. Yeah. So they didn't just, like, look at it. Yeah. Um, complex. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, I just keep thinking, like, lots of stickers, lots of stickers. It's like, and, like, really and, – and also, like – there's like about eight pages of ab- of appendices of this paper. Wow. Okay. So they were thorough. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, uh, six. Six appendices. Nice. <laughs> 
So skipping to results, they found that a display of anger as well as happiness was positively correlated to a favourable goal difference in World Cups. So both? Yep, so both seem to be related to goal difference. Hmm. So teams that display either more anger or more happiness reach an overall better position in the whole tournament. Hmm. Yeah. And then so they were like, well, a high goal difference might be achieved by either scoring more goals or letting in less goals, yeah. if that makes sense. So the display of happiness seemed to be linked to the scoring of goals. Okay. And anger seemed to be linked to conceding fewer goals. So what they thought. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, matches. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so really, really interesting. And uh, it's interesting that it's not expression at the time of the game. Yeah. But outside that, probably months, possibly even longer beforehand. Um, yeah. I mean, you do wonder whether it's like a spurious cor- correlation or something. But And they had a whole lot of interesting stats about kind of like, well, aggregating aggregating a motion score for the team versus the most individual individuals. And then they also controlled for team value by look like, so they looked up the player value of the teams and then used that to control like, and there was a few, there was some few other awesome statistical kind of stuff. Yeah. So a positive correlation between team performance and world cups group stage and the portrayal of anger and happiness. The results should not be interpreted as the teams whose players are angrier or happier perform better, but the teams whose players look angrier mm. and look happier perform better. Interesting. And they also sort of say, well, you know, this is in men and if you yeah. did it with women, I'm not so sure because it's linked with testosterone and stuff like that. So there you go. Soccer. World Cup done. Interesting. Where are you going to take us? Clowns. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about them? Oh, I don't like them. Oh, excellent. Good. That's that's where we're going. I think there was a Doctor Who episode and like there was, I think it was like the seventh Doctor or something and there was like some scary clowns. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah. And Stephen King's It. Yeah. So the place I'm going today is an article written by Frank McAndrew and Cornelia Dudley professor of psychology at Knox College and they wrote an article initially for the conversation and then it was re-released on Cyclopedia which is the APS blog but when there was that spate of do you remember all those clown sightings last year in about May in America there was all of these people dressing up as clowns and trying to freak people out yeah oh yeah do you remember that and they were showing up in creepy locations and Everyone was just a bit scared about what the clowns were going to do. Yeah. So they wanted to write an article called The Psychology Behind Why Clowns Creeps Out. And I was curious about this because I've always felt the same way about clowns. I just, they just don't do it for me. And what, what kind of previous research shows is that kids don't like them either. Like it's not, it's not like something that as we grow up, we all of a sudden decide that we don't like clowns really it's it's not generally liked by children or adults god yeah uh they talk a fair bit about like the history of clowns and how long they've looked the way that they do because of course there's a long history with jesters and things like that yeah but then for the sort of the last 150 years clowns have looked pretty similar to what they do now so you know the big shoes and the kind of fluffy hair and the the white makeup yeah the the makeup and the big nose and the kind of yeah they also talk a little bit about creepy clowns. People who have done criminal things dressed as clowns. But I'm just going to drop it. <laughs> yeah. Go past that. It's like shooting fish in a barrel with that one, though. Yeah. So the author's first study was the sort of the first empirical study about creepiness. 
And they kind of went with the idea that we tend to be frightened of things that are ambiguous. And so what they did was they got people to fill out an online survey and they had to, first of all... I just want to know whether they like applied for a grant for this because they can mention someone... It's like, like you're in the grant thing and you're like, you know what? I, 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 don't, I don't want to hear about this. No. <laughs> it's like, just, the it's like, just not, not going... It, do, it doesn't say, but I'd be curious about that as well. Add us at Two Shrinks Pod. Um, yep. So they had 1,341 people complete this online survey. Uh, the first part of it was that they had to rate the likelihood that a hypothetical creepy person would exhibit 44 different behaviours, such as unusual patterns of eye contact or physical characteristics like visible tattoos. In the second section, they had to rate the creepiness of 21 different occupations. And in the third section, they had to list two hobbies that they thought were creepy. And then in the final section, they noted how much they agreed with a bunch of statements about the nature of creepy people. So the results indicated that people we perceive as creepy were much more likely to be male than females. They note as are most clowns. Men are creepy. (laughs) (laughs) That unpredictability is an important component of creepiness and that unusual patterns of eye contact and other non-verbal behaviours set off our creepiness detectors big time. <laughs> yeah. Unusual or strange physical characteristics didn't in and of themselves predict whether we saw, thought someone was creepy, but the presence of other physical traits can kind of amplify mm. the general creepy yeah, that makes sense, it? tendencies. So like, 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 someone can look odd, but if, if their behaviour is relatively normal, then... That's fine. Yeah, that makes sense. But you put them together and, yeah. I, I really... The thing that hooked me into this, and I think I sent you a screenshot of this paragraph, which was, but the presence of other weird physical traits can amplify any other creepy tendencies that the person might be exhibiting, such as persistently steering the conversations towards particular sexual topics or failing to understand the policy about bringing reptiles into the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, Occupation-wise, clown was the most creepy. What a surprise. What a surprise. What Followed, was number two? Uh, undertakers, morticians, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And so then there was some more research done. Um, so can you tell me about the hobbies? What was the creepy hobby? Well, so they don't report what the creepy hobby was. I might have to go back to the original research and find out. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Know, I don't know what a creepy hobby... Because that was free text. People could write in what they thought was yeah, creepy. Right. So that could have gone all oh, sorts of directions. Been, and like having been a research assistant, yeah, coding, stuff like that. Oh, my nightmare. God. It's, an, it's a nightmare. Yeah, it takes so long. So, so basically they kind of sum up that... You know, the, the feeling of being creeped out about ambiguity is it's quite adaptive. That it's kind of, it's not that something's completely frightening and we should run away. But it's kind of like it sets you on Early alert age. and you don't yeah. quite know how to respond. Like if you saw someone who looked a bit creepy, you're not socially supposed to run away from them. But you might kind of try and avoid eye contact and sort of... Suss try and out. suss them out but it leaves you kind of feeling unsettled but then also like it's a signal it's like if you're feeling if you're acting that way then that might be a signal to someone to say hey you need to act differently if i'm going to accept you exactly yeah 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 and then the last bit that they talk about is about the work of a psychologist who studies chlorophobia i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly chlorophobia chlor chlorophobia the Are you doing something with your hand? What's that? There's that's a claw. <laughs> it's not related. <laughs> um, 
It's people who are frightened of clowns, the phobia of clowns. Oh, right, okay. Yep. And you mean normality? Yes. Yeah. They emphasise that it might be because the makeup that clowns wear adds further ambiguity. We yeah. can't tell what they're thinking or feeling yeah. behind the big garish smile. And you also can't really like tell their age and stuff like no. that. No. Like exactly. Yep. And so. You know, they they summarise what's going on with with saying that there are certainly other types of people who creep us out. Taxidermists and undertakers make a good showing on the creepy occupation spectrum. But they have their work cut out for them if they aspire to the level of creepiness that we automatically attribute to clowns. In other words, they have big shoes to fill. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yep. So there you go. You can see why it jiggled my fancy. (laughs) That's fabulous. Yeah. Well, um, I, we hope you guys enjoyed uh, the <laughs> segment, but also the interview. We yes. certainly have had a good time. Yep. We uh, will see you next time. We're going to be going towards antisocial personality yeah, disorder. Yeah. So time. that should be that should be creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It is supposed to be creepy. Yeah. That's it. And so don't forget to rate and review the show and all that jazz. See you next time. See you. Bye. bye.